Uh, today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 8. We're going to begin with verse 1. I've laid it out as though we're going to get through the whole chapter. And I kind of think we will. Uh, these things tend to go a lot more quickly in Exodus than I have typically thought. So I think we'll get through the chapter today, but if we don't, we'll stop where we are and pick it up next time. So we haven't been together for a couple weeks, so let me start out where we left off. Uh, when we last met before the holidays, uh, we were in Exodus 6 and 7, and we saw God responding to Pharaoh's increased oppression of the Israelites. He had increased his oppression because Moses had come to him on behalf, Moses and Aaron, on behalf of God to say, let us go three days journey in the wilderness and worship. And their response was, no. And by the way, no more straw for the bricks and all of those things that just really made it oppressive. And uh, as he increased his oppression of the Jewish people, uh, Moses and the people uh, responded with frustration and anger and even some questioning of God about this isn't working out so well what's the deal and God says uh, watch what I do to Pharaoh uh, under compulsion he will let you go as a matter of fact he will drive you out of his country so God says over time this is going to change by his actions and so God says to Moses and Aaron and he declared to them, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God Almighty. There's none equal with me. I've got a covenant with Abraham that his descendants were going to the land of Canaan. And indeed you are, and I've heard your groaning, so watch what happens. So uh, they're to tell Israel that the rescue is coming through great judgment and that they'll be redeemed by God's power. You'll be a great nation of my own, God says. And I will give you the promised land. So then God tells Moses in our last time to go tell Pharaoh, let Israel go. And uh, Moses says to God, when he, Pharaoh, he tells him to go to Pharaoh, well, Israel's not even listening to me, so how will Pharaoh listen? And the Lord answers back, by giving them charge, responsibility, regarding both Israel and Pharaoh for the purpose of bringing Israel out of Egypt. So God sent Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh with this insight. And he says, after you speak the command to Pharaoh, I will harden his heart so that God has a purpose in all this. I can multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt. God wants to show his great power through Pharaoh's rebelliousness, through Pharaoh's unwillingness to let the people go so that all Egypt will know that I am Jehovah, Yahweh. It says Lord in the English translation, but there's a lot of times I think it's really valuable if they would have used God's formal name so we can see how God is talking about himself. So, Mero, so we saw last time uh, Moses did go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh demands a miracle. Aaron throws down his rod. It becomes a snake. So Pharaoh turns to his wise men and magicians, and they're able to replicate that same sign so they throw their staffs down and they become a snake but of course Aaron's snake eats their snakes or serpents is the word and so Pharaoh sees this he hardens his heart and will not listen so the Lord says to Moses go in the morning and wait for Pharaoh as he heads to the Nile and say tell him the Lord's the one sending me let my people go and serve me is what God's message is to Pharaoh by this you shall know I am Lord and so um, while they're there, uh, Aaron is directed to, uh, wave, to pass his staff over the Nile and all water in Egypt turns to blood. The fish died. It's undrinkable. Now the magicians can replicate that. Now I don't know where they found more water to turn to blood, and I don't know how that's considered as a plus, but that's what happened. So they wind up digging for water all around the Nile, and seven days go by. And that takes us then to Exodus chapter 8. And let's begin with verses 1 through 7. And here's how it reads. Then the Lord said to Moses, and just remember, we've done the first plague. The Nile's been turned to blood. They had trouble finding water to drink. 
It's not a pleasant experience. Seven days have gone by, and no formal mention is made of it, but we don't hear about the Nile being full of blood anymore. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come upon you and your people and all your servants. And then the Lord said, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So this is the second plague. And so the Lord starts out by telling Moses, go back to Pharaoh. And when he goes back to Pharaoh, it's a fairly common theme. Thus says Jehovah, the I am God, the God of the Israelites. And on behalf of God, he says, let my people go serve me. But if you refuse, God says through Moses, I will strike your whole land with frogs. That word strike there means I will plague your whole land with frogs. Now, the Egyptians favored the frogs. Uh, frogs were a permanent symbol that you'd find on jewelry. You'd find it um, in their hieroglyphics. You would find it uh, as decoration. You'd find it all over. They love frogs. Uh, and what's that? Uh, not, not to eat them, and we'll get there. They didn't, they didn't know. They weren't eating frogs at all. Um, and, and this first plague... Uh, that was with the blood is somewhat connected with the second plague of the frogs in that um, and let's I what did I do with mine I've got a I've got one I really do okay I handed out and now I'm not going to be able to find it last time yes I handed that out I'll steal yours for a minute I want to talk about this she's got one I want to talk about this just a minute but the God of the Nile, there, there is a God um, called Happy. I don't know if that's the one that's on here or not. Yeah, it's down at the bottom part of this. And Happy was a God, H-A-P-I, was a God that was the God that oversaw the flooding of the Nile. And we might think, well, that's a bad thing. No, the flooding of the Nile was a good thing for them when it worked right when it was the right level of flooding and so on, uh, we're out here on the delta and it would wash down topsoil and spread it out over the ground. It would make the ground more fertile. And then when the floods would recede, then, recede, then they could go in and do their planting and they were working in fertile ground. There was plenty of moisture and it was very productive ground. I mean, that, it worked really well. And this God, Happy, was the one that they gave credit for, credit to, for this flooding. Well, um, as we go along, by the way, where did the Israelites leave? Land of Goshen. It's some of the prime ground area that surrounds where they live up there in this delta where the Nile dumps into the ocean. But there's another god called Hecht. And I believe that's right there on your sheet, H-E-Q-T. And this is the wife god of another god called Clum, which we're not going to care about right now. But this Hecht god was, a, was the god of a, a resurrection and fertility. Resurrection, not meaning like we think of resurrection so much, but meaning like the cycles of the earth and the cycles of life. Meaning that you get the Nile comes up and gets flooded. Well, that tends to kill off a lot of things, but it also then comes out of that flood very fertile. We can grow a lot, and the animals are also 
um, then able to eat and remain fertile and all of those kinds of things. And that symbol for Hecht was a statue of a woman. This is their image that they worshipped, so to speak. Her head was a frog's head. Wasn't that beautiful? Um, and so there's a little bit of a connection between the first plague and the second plague, and they both surround the Nile. It's both about life coming out of the Nile, and, and then this fertility god, Het, is, is a part of that. And so, um, now the frogs did play a role in the cycle of this flooding and receding, because after the flood would recede, the croaking of the frogs would begin, and then when the croaking of the frogs was a symbol, sign that, hey, the water's moved back, the frogs are out there on this moist area on the ground, and their croaking was considered um, the symbol of the land becoming fertile again, now we can go plant. And so they really liked the frogs. It was just, it was a good sign. Um, of, of, of that would, would come into their lives when the frogs started to make their croaking again. Well, <clears throat> so before we go on, I want to talk about this a little bit. I have discovered in prepping for some of what I did this week and looking ahead and some other study things that there's, it's pretty simple on the first uh, two plagues, and probably even the third plague, to connect an Egyptian god up with it. But when you get further down, it gets a lot tougher. And there's no question that when God works through these plagues, you can make connections with Egyptian gods, and he's just smacking them in the face about who their gods are and their ineffectiveness. Um, but you can look at this one. If you went over and looked um, in the New American Standard MacArthur, edition, MacArthur Study Bible, he's got a, a similar kind of a thing on page 102, if you want to look there, it's the bottom of chapter 7. And he does some similar connections, but it's not always the same name for the God. It's, and it gets really confusing. And so it's hard, it's hard to say this is exactly what's going with this. There's some real easy connections. We made these on the first first two plagues and we'll do that again on the third one but when you start getting up into the flies and beyond it's kind of like well okay it could be that it could be this oh sometimes they called it that sometimes they called it this so I'm not going to try to make a real exact connection all the way through I mean I think there's no question that God is is uh, certainly attacking the Egyptian beliefs and their gods I'm going to give this back to you um, but realize that it's not a perfect, simple way to do that alignment, okay? Now, there's another part of their favoring of frogs and their worship of, of, of frogs, and that is that um, the Egyptians, it was against their societal norms it was against their laws i'm not sure what all to say but you don't kill frogs frogs are <coughs> special creatures and they're considered um too important too connected with um, the spiritual world to be killing them and so Here's this plague that God says he's going to bring with the frogs. In verse 3, he says they're going to come up. And you're going to find them. They're going to be everywhere in your houses, in your bedroom, in your bed, uh, in your oven, in your kneading bowls, on your people. They're going to be everywhere. And so uh, they're going to come up on you and all your servants. Can, can you imagine living in a situation is described here oh let me warm up the bread you know open the bread package and it's got frogs in it and you go to put it on a plate and it's got frogs on the plate and you get ready to put it in a microwave and you open the microwave and there's frogs in the microwave 
And it's impossible to warm up that bread without, in their case, they would be working in a regular oven. Can you imagine some of those cooked dishes that came out with this nice frog right in the middle of it cooked into it? Um, oh, let me get you a glass of water. Oh, ignore the frog. I can't keep him out. You know, it's just, ah. And in our world, sometimes we have critters come. I remember many years ago, it wasn't nearly this bad, but the grasshoppers, not like described in the Laura Ungles books on, uh, uh, that she wrote, but we had, we had so many grasshoppers. They were eating all of the, the grasses that we were trying to put into hay. And so farmers had a quick solution that didn't work very well, but it worked a little bit. We'll spray them. You know, we can get rid of these things. Well, it slowed them down some. But these frogs now, they're considered part of the spiritual realm, and you can't kill a frog. I imagine a few people lost their religion <laughs> during this time period. But anyway, so they're going to be everywhere. I can't help it. I'll tell you about this. I knew, I knew a man out by Lincoln, Kansas. Not Lincolnville, Lincoln. Um, that we were out there for about a year, Ruth and I. And there was one guy out there that was not poor. But he lived kind of like he was poor. I mean, he didn't drive bad vehicles, but if he bought a pickup, he'd run it till it went to the junkyard and then buy another one. I mean, just everything around him said, I'm going to pinch the penny till it screams kind of a thing. <laughs> but he built a new house, beautiful house. We were in his house, and I, I kind of, I didn't want to say, what in the world led you to build this house when you... Your farm buildings, I mean, they're standing, but get just enough maintenance to keep standing and so on and so on. And I says, well, this is a really nice house. Uh, you know, try, I don't remember what I asked him now, but I asked him something about, you know, how'd you design it or, you know, what was the, the vision behind the house that you built? He says, oh, the house was easy. One morning I got out of bed and the old house was, had a lot of room for critters to come in in the morning I got out of bed and was standing on a snake I decided I wanted a new house <laughs> all right I get that I would have been in the same way matter of fact I'm not sure I wouldn't have burnt that house down the same day but anyway uh, so anyhow God says this is what's going to happen and they're going to come up where out of the waters and the Nile is so central to um, Egypt and their lifestyle and their beliefs and everything that here coming out of the main thing of who they were in terms of their economy and their beliefs that's going to be the source of all these frogs and so um, God told Moses all right tell Aaron to stretch out your hand with your staff over all the rivers and waters and streams and Aaron did and interestingly enough Pharaoh turned to his magicians, the occult, the secret arts, and they did the same thing. The first thing that comes to my mind is how could you tell? I mean, you know, if this is what's, but it's probably while it's happening, so they were able to do it in a way that it was clear that they increased the frog plague. And I still can't get it out of my head. Why in the world? If you want to show you got some power, make the plague go the other direction. But nonetheless, um, they show their power, and it's a terrible plague, and they can't kill the frogs. And so that takes us down to verse 8. So let's look at verses 8 through 15. So Pharaoh called for Moses, and Aaron said, Moses and Aaron, and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me, when shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs may be destroyed from you and your houses and that they may be left only in the Nile? And then he said, Tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and from your houses and your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. 
Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord, cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so the frogs are out there. Now, we don't know how long it happened. When it says, then Pharaoh called for Moses, it sounds like, okay, this is next in the order of events. It probably happened fairly quickly. And you can imagine what it was like to live in that kind of an environment. I don't think it would take any of us much time to say, we've got to figure this out. And the only answer is, well, let's go back to God. And that has to be done through Moses and Aaron. So Pharaoh says to Moses, now ask Jehovah. He uses the name Jehovah according to the text, according to the Hebrew that's been translated to English. So what did he say in Egyptian? I can't really be sure, but he's referring to Jehovah to remove the frogs and I will let the people go make their sacrifices. So... Um, Moses turns to Pharaoh and he says you have the honor or the opportunity or um, it, it, we're going to let you decide your purview of setting the date when should I ask for this to happen so that the frogs and Moses is very clear we're going to see the frogs destroyed except they're still going to be in the Nile which was normal I mean this isn't a continuation of the plague but it's just real clear we're not going to kill every frog we're going to kill the frogs that are outside of their normal place and pharaoh looks at moses don't know how he came up with it i would have said today but he said tomorrow and uh so we don't know how long the frogs were there but he's turning to moses and aaron moses in particular and saying get rid of them and moses says when do you want and moses says it will happen as you ask for a purpose, not just because you ask for it, not because God is going to show you any kindness, but so that you will know there is no one like our God. And then he tells him the frogs will be gone except for the Nile. So Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh and Moses cried out to God, Remove the frogs from Pharaoh. So was Moses presumptuous to tell Pharaoh this was going to happen when he had not even yet brought the issue before God? Go back to 7.1, Exodus 7.1. When Moses is complaining that Pharaoh won't listen to me uh, in the end of chapter 6, this is God's response to Moses. I will make you as God or like God or I will make you God is the literal English translation to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And um, what God is saying is that I'm going to give you a position with a certain level of authority. Later on, he would say, I give you charge over Pharaoh and Israel to see that Israel gets out of the promised land. So he's given Moses some responsibility and some authority. And so I think God's relationship to Moses is fairly clear at this point. There are some things... Moses, you can just go ahead with, so to speak. If, God, if Moses had been presumptuous here, based on everything that's gone on between Moses and God, I think God would have been very quick to say, what, what were you making promises on my behalf for? But he doesn't do that. He says, Moses says to Pharaoh, or Moses, um, I've got to get down to the right verse, uh, cried out to the Lord in verse 12 concerning the frogs which had been inflicted on Pharaoh and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. 
part of what Moses did when he told Pharaoh, okay, it's going to happen. I think Moses already knew the plague was not going to be permanent forever. And he knew what God's purposes were. And he said, then the purpose is so you will know. There's no God like ours. So Moses is upholding God in the right way. And I think God has given Moses a certain amount of, of responsibility to make things happen. I think, I think it all just lines up well that God said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And so the Lord did in verse 13, according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died everywhere. Was the problem over for Egypt? Now what's their problem? Yeah, dead frogs. They didn't just disappear. They've got to be piled up in mounds. And it made the land what? Foul. It stank. It was more than stinky. It was probably unsafe. Here's going, I mean, I don't want to get too graphic here, but when bodies decompose, things run off of them into the water and everywhere else. And so they've got this mess. And they've got mounds and mounds and mounds of frogs. And let's go back to the beginning of this. Where were the frogs? Everywhere. And how big is everywhere in this plague? All over Egypt. Yeah, this isn't just up here in the area of the delta or somewhere. Now, in this time, Egypt was mostly the land surrounding the Nile. It wasn't, didn't have quite the firm borders that it would have later, but it's a big area. And everybody, I mean, can you imagine living down in the southern part? You know, the, the delta's in the north. In the southern part, you know, you weren't there when God and Pharaoh talked. Can you imagine waking up one day? And in the middle of the day when Aaron waved his staff, all of a sudden there's frogs coming out of everywhere. I mean, and then you can't kill them. And then they all die. And now you've got these big mounds of stinking frogs. And so they're everywhere. And while they're still everywhere, apparently, but Pharaoh saw, oh, relief has come. And so in verse 15, what happened? Pharaoh saw, okay, we got that kind of going my better direction. What does he do? Pharaoh hardens his heart. And I told you clear back at the beginning, if you read through each of these passages, and I forget the number, but there's a number of them where Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Half the time the verses say he did it, and the other half the time the verses say God did it. So Pharaoh's not not very innocent here so he hardens his heart he didn't listen to them and by the way who had predicted that God himself said he's not going to do it don't get your hopes too high this is going to be a game of patience for you Israelites and Moses because we're going to demonstrate my power through a stubborn Pharaoh with a hard heart that will not let you go until the day comes he will drive you out of the land. And so here we are. We're pretty much done with the second plague except for the cleanup. Isn't that the way life kind of goes? Everything gets done except for the cleaning up. And then you've got the cleanup to do. Well, we get down to another plague there. And it begins in verse 16. We're just, I'm going to read three verses here, four verses, 16 through 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The, magician, the magicians tried with their secret arts, to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we get to the next plague, and the Lord tells Moses, Okay, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth. 
and it will become gnats. Well, does anybody have any other translations for gnats? Yes, I've got Well, flies is the next one. My, oh, lice? Yeah, that's a real, com those are the two com most common translations. Um, I mean, you could probably start arguments amongst the commentators what it really was. Many of them believe they were some sort of a biting fly. And quite literally, um, so they say it's a small insect or maybe lice, so they're not against lice. Um, oh, where's my note? Oh, I'm sorry, that's on the next one. And, but uh, they, they think they were biting insects of some sort. Uh, but so Aaron strikes the dust, and out of the dust comes gnats or lice or some very small insect that was not pleasant, obviously. Have any of you ever been where there was a lot of gnats? Can they drive you crazy? Well, that was nothing compared to this, I think. Because it says here uh, that the dirt of the ground became gnats. Now, I don't think it went down the full crust of the earth, but this surface area, out of the surface area, you're getting gnats. And um, I have, when I was growing up, everybody talked about certain kinds of uh, bees making nests in the ground. I never saw a nest of bees in the ground until I was an adult. Then I parked a lawnmower over one one day, and that was exciting. Um, but anyway, uh, but I, I've seen little butt. My, we've got some round wooden tubs, and I need to figure out how in the world to get those heavy things disposed of. But they're full of dirt, and people planted plants in them, and they've kind of run their course and need to go away. But a few years ago, one of them wound up with all kinds of bugs having homes in it. And you got if you bump it, bugs are just. And so I kind of have a little bit of a vision for bugs coming out of the ground. Now they were bigger than gnats. But so now we've got gnats everywhere, man or beast. And the magicians, and this is all over Egypt, and the magicians tried to do this and could not. And so eventually the magicians in their failure come to Pharaoh, and what do they attribute the existence of these gnats to? Finger of God. And by the way, the word for God here is Elohim. Uh, that's one of the things that doesn't always get sorted out in our English translations. You remember what Elohim means? We saw Elohim a lot in Genesis and a little bit in Exodus so far. God Almighty, meaning the most powerful God. Um, the I am statement is a little bit stronger, but nonetheless, this is the most... This is the finger of the most powerful God, because he's more powerful than we are anyway, that's for sure. And so um, they're telling Pharaoh, you're dealing with the most powerful deity in existence. And of course, the Israelites know who that is. That is their God. And so how is Pharaoh's response to that? I'm not interested in that. I'm not going to do anything about it. And honestly, not much happened. So how is this plague different than the previous three plagues? I'm sorry, previous two plagues. The magicians couldn't duplicate it. The magicians couldn't duplicate it. There's some other differences here in the events of this plague. He didn't, Pharaoh just, he acts like he's just going to live with it, okay? What else? Well, they weren't everywhere like the frogs were. Oh, yeah, they were everywhere. Oh. Yeah, they were over on all the people and all the animals. I say everywhere. It wasn't graphic in the nooks and crannies of the home, but everybody was dealing with gnats. Everybody's covered with gnats. How did this one start? Maybe I should ask, how did the other one start? What's the first event in the coming of a plague? They were warned. Pharaoh was warned. They go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no or nothing or whatever, but so then God brings the plague. In this time, did Pharaoh know it was coming? 
No, it's just kind of seems almost out of the blue. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a looks like somewhat of a response to Pharaoh not paying much attention to the gnats. Or to the yeah, to the gnats. No. It's a response to the frogs. Sorry, I got things a little confused in my head there for a minute. But you know, here's they just go and God says, Okay, let's have another one. And here come the gnats. And and Pharaoh has, I'm going to guess I'm going to say misbehaved. Pharaoh has shown his stubbornness and his rebellion against God because he's, what did he say he was going to do if the frogs went away? Let them go do their, their sacrifices. Did he do that? No. So God didn't really need to have another interaction with Pharaoh. He didn't need to have another chance to rebel. He's already rebelling, so God says, hey, do this, Aaron, and Aaron does through Moses. He says to Aaron, do that. And so then these gnats show up out of everywhere, and the magicians couldn't duplicate it. And here's another thing that's very different. Did the magicians acknowledge the demonstration of God's power in the other plagues? No, because we can do that too. This time, the magicians initiate a conversation with Pharaoh that says this is the finger of God Almighty. So that plague really goes pretty quickly. Um, and so I got to get so we have the, the plague of the gnats come and in verse 20 then is where we're going to pick up reading. We're going to read down through 24. This is what comes after the gnats. The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he comes to the water. Has, he, has, God, has Moses done this before? Yeah, 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 before the blood. And say to him, Thus says the Lord. Do you see that pattern that's there? Thus says the Lord is a key phrase, and I'm speaking on behalf of God. This isn't just me. And God says through me, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on all your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day... I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I'll put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. So Moses is back, thus says the Lord, by the water again, <clears throat> let my people go and serve me, and if you don't, swarms of flies will be on your servants and the people of your house and your ground. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to use up a lot of time with this, but do you know what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is... <clears throat> a Greek translation of the Old Testament <clears throat> that was done, boy, I should have looked up more information to really explain it well, but it was done because it was a common language that had developed and it was also, it was, it was very usable, usable, <clears throat> excuse me, useful to many of the people that were studying and following the Old Testament. And the Septuagint uh, takes this term and tra it, they translate into Greek for the insect dogfly. And the dogflies, and why they did that, I mean, I can't say that's exactly correct or right, but the dogflies were blood-sucking flies. They would bite to get the blood started, and then they would suck it out. Has anybody in here ever experienced that? I know you have. Well, give me a million horseflies for every 
black fly is what I'm going to call it. Uh, that's the term we used. I have been around blood-sucking flies in Canada, and 10 of them are enough to drive you batty. They're very hard to swat, although one of the camp directors gave me a fly swatter and said, well, it makes you feel a little better, and it did. I probably, in the first hour, I was fishing, and they were in there trying to bite me everywhere, and they're attracted to white clothing. You learn that. But, and I had on white socks a lot up there. They'll, they'll bite you through a white sock. No problem. And so I probably swatted 100 the first hour I was trying. I realized around me there are no less flies. There's 100 dead ones on the floor of the boat, and I, I do feel a little better. But it didn't slow them down. These guys were vicious. And... They, t they would come out from shore. You could see them coming sometimes if you anchored too close to shore. And what you try to do is try to get in there and get anchored out there far enough out they didn't sense you were there, you thought, hoped. <coughs> Never worked. Um, I, sometimes it took them a little longer to, re hey, hey, everybody, look over there. And then they come. But anyway, <laughs> these things will drive you nuts if that's what it was. In verse 22, he says, now, I'm not bringing them to Goshen. That's where my people are. They're not going to swarm there. And why? Why am I doing this? So that you will know I am Lord. And God calls himself Jehovah there and am in the midst of the land. In other words, he's not a far distant God waiting on Moses to communicate back and forth. He's right there. He's watching. He knows. And he's taking care of it. This will be a division between my people and your people. And it's coming tomorrow. Why did God make the division? It says something right there. Why did he do that? So you will know I am God and am here in the midst of the land. Now, that's what he says to Pharaoh. Who else is going to know? The Israelites. There's a plus side for God's leadership of Israel in this plague they get to see that this powerful God isn't just going to bring devastation upon the whole land until they get out of there but that in this case he's choosing to separate them off and not have them endure the plague along with the rest of Egypt and so this is also I think a great testimony to the Israelites that earlier had had trouble being very happy about Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh because you go to Pharaoh and our oppression is increased. They treat us worse. This isn't, a, this isn't a good thing you're doing to us or for us. But here now God is showing them they do get some favoritism. In verse 24, the Lord did this. There were great swarms everywhere, in the houses and everywhere, and the land was laid waste. So I'm not a big cattle farmer, but do you, uh, I know cattlemen work at keeping their livestock free from lots of flies. Why? Well, they can bring sores, they can bring disease. Cattle get too big. They were like me out in the boat. I'm busy swatting flies. I'll eat later. I can't ignore these flies. Now I'm probably, for somebody who knows what cattle are all about, would probably say, oh, you kind of didn't quite that quite right. But they know that their cows are going to do better without all these flies around. And here we've got all these flies and who knows what they're consuming what they're eating of the stores. I don't, I don't know what these flies particularly would feast upon. I've watched grasshoppers eat plants up. I don't know what the flies do besides the ones that got their meals out of me. And, but they're here and the land is laid waste. And it's a pretty great waste that is laid. And so what are some differences so far in this plague that you see? 
Yeah, that's a huge one. We separated them off. The other one is, this time, it's announced to Pharaoh, oh, this is going to happen tomorrow, and there's a little bit more of a time element. And so here are all of these flies making their appearance. And so let's go ahead and finish out this chapter then, and we'll see what else we want to do with it. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in verse 25 and said, Go sacrifice to your God within this land, or within the land. But Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness only. You shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I shall... Um, I'm sorry, my eyes clicked off. Um, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from the people tomorrow only. Do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from the Pharaoh, from his servants, and from this people. Not one remained. Can you imagine that? How many times you ever get fly free in your house? But anyway, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. So now Pharaoh is asking Moses and Aaron to come to him, and he says, all right, go sacrifice to your God, but do it within the land. And Moses says, nope, no deal. That's not right. Our sacrifices would be an abomination to the Egyptians. If they saw what we were going to do, they would be shocked and offended it would be an abomination, and so they would probably look at us as barbarians or whatever and want to kill us, stone us. So three days' journey as God has commanded. Notice that as God has commanded. We want the three days' journey. And Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go to make your sacrifices. Don't go very far. In other words, stay close to home. You're coming back. That's real clear. Also, he said, make supplications for me. So what's he asking for here? Worship me too. No, just the opposite. What? What's that for relief? Yeah, and, and he, but he's saying, you know, ask God to favor me. Let me be in one of the good guys in God's eyes. Now, do you think Pharaoh really meant that? No. No, this is, this is politics. Um, and so Moses in verse 29 says back to Pharaoh I'm going out to ask God to take away the flies tomorrow only he says this to Pharaoh it's kind of like when some people talk first person about themselves feels a little funny don't let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice you've done this before deceitfully don't do it again don't do that so Moses, though, he told Pharaoh he would. He went to God, and just as he described, he asked God about taking the flies away. And indeed, God took the flies away and was very thorough in it. Not one remained. And yet in verse 32, Pharaoh, it says, hardened his heart again and did not let the people go. So we have this continuing pattern of Pharaoh being confronted by God, acquiescing in some way, verbally, but withholds the action. And so that takes us through the end of the fourth plague. And the flies are gone. Now, is God surprised? No, he told him at the beginning, Pharaoh is going to have a hard heart. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And at times we see in this passage, and we just ended up with one here, but Pharaoh hardened his heart 
again, this time also, and did not let the people go. And so Pharaoh is trying hard to bargain with God earlier in this resolution of the plague. He tries to say, well, yes, make your sacrifices, but do them here. And they don't, and, and Moses says, you know, no deal, can't do that. Not going to be within the land of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's trying to do the bargaining maneuver to get things to work out so that as these Israelites are placated enough that God will remove the plagues, that he still retains control over these Israelites. And Pharaoh isn't very successful in keeping the plagues away. You've got a thought, I can tell. Well, so they lived in, in the land of Goshen for decades. About 400 years. 400 years. And they never made sacrifices there in the land of Goshen? Uh, apparently not. At least not in a way that the Egyptians saw it. As a, as a, as a nation, I don't think they probably were based on what's said here because if you saw us, you'd have a problem. I mean, the other piece of that is many, not all, but many, well, maybe they're all acting as slaves. Many of them are brick builders. Some of them are acting as shepherds in other roles. We know that from what we, what we read. Um, but if they're going to make the normal sacrifices, depends on how many people you think are here and that's a topic that's going to come up when we get ready to make make them move out of out of Egypt but some people and I'm going to say not ones that I think make much sense although some of those people make a lot of sense in some other areas think that maybe there was eh, 40,000 of them um, I think it's very clear there was probably about 600,000 of them. Now, if you're going to go make sacrifices with 600,000 people, you're going to consume a lot of what? A lot of animals, a lot of grain. There can be grain sacrifices. I mean, there's, there's a lot of sacrifices going to get made. And so the Egyptians are going to, I mean, that's going to be I mean, the, the Israelites have a, they're doing a lot of shepherding and they have flocks so, but the Egyptians are going to sit there and watch all of this all of these animals that are part of their potential food supply what, what are you doing? You're killing all of our, you're killing that many sheep to worship? Um, and so there's that factor as well is it's going to consume a lot of stuff um, this is before the Mosaic Covenant. So as a precedent, wouldn't there, be fewer, there would be fewer sacrifices. Oh. So as a precedent in Genesis, we see sacrifices right. whenever, whenever God covenants with someone. So like Abraham uh, sacrificed, you know, walked through. So, so here's one of the challenges that we have in what's, what we get a chance to look at. So here's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all made sacrifices. And they, had, they would build altars. And it was usually at a memorial event like you're talking about. What we don't get to see is as the offspring of Jacob become tribes with many people in it, what would, what would these sacrifices have looked like? So maybe I'm making an assumption that's not right. I don't know. Because we've never seen, does every family make their own sacrifice? Are they going to make a sacrifice just nationally? I mean, what are they going to do here? Because you're right in saying, you know, we don't have the covenant of Moses yet. We don't have... We don't have all the sacrificial laws that would tell you that you personally for your sins are going to make these sacrifices. And if you have this situation, you will make this sacrifice. So I think that would be true. But I also, I, I, I also tend to think that their intention on in these sacrifices was not just um, a big national sacrifice. I, I would be really surprised, and I'm also thinking of some archaeological things that I've seen as a result of prayer, preparing for where is Mount Sinai, 
that they had some big pens that looked like they were set up to move animals right to an altar for a sacrifice. Now, was that, that might have been post Mosaic Law that they built those because they received the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai? I don't know. Just interesting in my thoughts for me. Probably not for you, but for me. So, yeah, I don't know. Yes, Dave. You ever tell me the Passover was celebrated the day before? Yes, it was. Not, not in not Egypt. Yep. And actually, burnt offering, I think mentioned in Exodus, was by Jethro to God in the wilderness in Exodus 18. So I don't think there's too much precedent for a sacrificial system uh, amongst the Israelites until post-Exodus, probably post-Sinai. Certainly it's not systematic. Definitely not systematic. I would. The, they hadn't had the Passover yet, so they wouldn't have had that to look to to govern their sacrifices. Yeah, which. Well, they, they also didn't have a priesthood set up. In other words, there might right. have been some local leaders, but now you've got Moses and Aaron coming along. Yep. And they are the leadership. Well, they're the leadership from the time of Moses forward, and out of that, I mean, they're both of the tribe of Levi, and out of that you get the Levitical priesthood, and you get the succession of Aaron for the high priests. Um, you know, that's a good point. So I, I don't know, what, I, I guess maybe I made a, an assumption that might not stand up with regard to the quantity. I don't know. I, I, don't, here, I guess here's the thing that you could say real accurately. I don't, when Moses said we want to go out and make sacrifice to God, what did he have in mind in specific? I don't know. Whatever it was, I don't think he, I don't think he was stretching the truth when he said what we're going to do would be an abomination in your eyes. Now, what was it about it? What was it specifically they were going to do? What was it would be abominable in the eyes of the Egyptians? I'm not sure. Well, they did. And, and so if you all of a sudden have this fairly large body of people doing something that is pretty much alien to well, their own system, you could have had a lot of pushback. From well, it could, it, it could have been that they weren't going to honor the Egyptian gods. And, and this is going to sound kind of weird, but um, I'll use this one just because we talked about it. If they were going to go out and sacrifice frogs, we would have known that, no, oh, no, no, you can't kill frogs. And the Egyptians had a lot of things, a lot of critters that they looked at as connections to their occult worship. So maybe there would have been something related to that, I, but I'm, I don't know that. I'm not trying to say that's the case. But. There's an interesting transition that occurs, and I've kind of hinted at it from the other direction, and I'm using time. But after Moses goes, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh the first time, Moses goes back and complains to God. This, this didn't work out right. And it's shortly after that, and I, I showed you the passages, both of them today in one time or another, where Moses says, I give you charge over Israel and Egypt for the purpose of getting the people out. And he also says, I will make you as God before Pharaoh. So I think at that point in time, Moses quits complaining. And he's just going to Pharaoh as God directs, but he's right there hammering away, and he doesn't seem to have any hesitancy. And I think that gives a lot of evidence to that assumption, Dave, that somewhere along the way between that first visit with Pharaoh and later on, 
uh, Moses is much more confident in what he's doing and probably based on some knowledge.